The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verse 31. The 31st verse in the 4th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. We interrupt our studies in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians this Sunday morning in order that we may consider together what we find here in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles about the coming and the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit upon the early Christian church. This book of Acts is particularly the book of the Christian church. We are told about its formation and about its early beginnings and work. But it all centers, of course, in that great and momentous event which took place on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. The account is there in the second chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. How the disciples and others had been waiting together for ten days after our Lord's ascension, waiting in accordance with his command for the coming upon them of the Holy Spirit. And you remember how, as they were there of one accord in one place, the Holy Spirit was poured forth upon them. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and cloven tongues as a fire descended upon the head of each one present. And they began to speak in other languages, so that the crowd in Jerusalem, the people who'd come up from various countries, Jews and proselytes, etc., who spoke different languages, were amazed and astounded to hear these men speaking to them in their own tongues, in their own languages, and declaring unto them the wonderful works of God. Well, now, surely there is nothing more important at a time like this than for us to remind ourselves of these things. Because the Christian church finds herself again in a position of difficulty, as she was at the beginning. There were but a handful of people, ignorant and unlearned men, you remember, they're described as. Here they were, and yet the Lord of glory had left him his message and his own glory, as it were, with them and in their hands, and they're faced with a hostile and an antagonistic world. And here we are told how they faced that position and that situation. And it seems to me that the church is in the same case at the present time. More and more the church becomes but a minority, but a remnant in this and in other lands. The statistics are proving this. Year by year, these general assemblies and councils of the various denominations, they report this reduction in the number of members and adherents. The church, we are but a handful of people, and the whole world is, as it were, against us and hostile and threatening. And in certain parts of the world, men and women could only come to a place of worship like this at risk of life and of limb. And God alone knows whether that's going to spread and extend to other countries. However, I say, in general, we seem to be back again in the same position as the early church found herself. Now, in this particular chapter that we're looking at, we have all this focus for us in a very striking manner. Peter and John we're going up to the temple one day at the hour of prayer. 
And they saw a man seated there at the beautiful gate of the temple uh, who had been paralyzed. And suddenly they were given a commission to heal him. And they looked upon him and said, Silver and gold have we none. Silver and gold have I none, said Peter, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth I say unto thee, Rise up and walk. And he arose immediately. And his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he, walking and leaping and praising God, went into the temple. And it caused a great sensation. So much so, you remember, that the authorities, the Jewish authorities in particular, became very alarmed. They said, if this sort of thing goes on, everybody's going to believe this message, the message of this Jesus. The Sadducees and the captain of the temple, we are told, and the authorities were alarmed at this. And you remember the story tells us how they had Peter and John arrested, and they put them before the council and they examined them. And they were in great difficulties. They couldn't dispute the fact, and yet they wanted to stop it. So they charged these two disciples that they should preach no more in the name of this Jesus, nor do anything in his name, that the thing must stop. Very well, there is the position. A kind of official ban placed upon the preaching and the teaching of the gospel and the activity of the Christian church. Now, what we are told here is how they reacted to that, what they did about it. And as I say, it is because this is the pattern and the standard of what should always be the behavior of the church that I call your attention to it. It seems to me to be the greatest tragedy of all at the present time that the Christian church doesn't seem to understand this and doesn't seem to have learned the lesson. For she is doing almost everything except the thing which we find described here. Very well, here we are with all these great forces arrayed against us. What are we to do about it? How are we to face it all? Well, here's the way to face it. And you read the history of all the great revivals that have ever taken place in the long story of the Christian church. And you'll find that invariably they've just repeated this. They've come back to this. And they've reacted and behaved in precisely the same manner. Very well then, what are we told? Well, the first thing we must indicate is what they didn't do. Here are Peter and John, you see. And they're banned and they're prohibited. And they're warned and threatened. What did they do? I say, first of all, what didn't they do? Well, you don't find that they decided to go slow. They didn't uh, decide uh, to hold a conference. And there in the conference suggest that perhaps they should uh, go slow for the time being and use a little diplomacy and uh, not uh, agitate the situation any further, nor irritate uh, the authorities. There's not a vestige of that, not a suspicion of it. I don't stop at that. I go on rather to point out this, that they didn't decide either to modify their message. You see, the trouble was due to the preaching of this Jesus, and especially of his resurrection. That was the thing that infuriated the authorities, the claim of these men that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had all seen crucified upon that cross and dead upon it and buried in a grave and a stone rolled over it, what these men said was that he had come out of that grave in the body. Now, they didn't merely say that he was still alive. 
or that his spirit was still in existence somewhere. They said that he came out of the grave in the body. They bore witness, we are told, to the resurrection. And that's what that means. Now that was the thing that infuriated the authorities everywhere, always, because its implications were so obvious. That fact of the resurrection threw light upon his death. If he indeed has risen from the dead, well then, not only are they defeated, but even death is defeated. He's the Son of God. Well, if he's the Son of God, why did he ever die? There's only one explanation. He died to make atonement for sin. The whole gospel comes in, you see, in this fact of the resurrection. And so they hated this above all else. I say we don't find that these people decided together that they'd modify the message, that they'd compromise. That they'd say, well, now then, people don't like this, but, uh, well, let's, uh, let's uh, preach his teaching. It was very wonderful teaching, and it'll appeal to the natural man who's an idealist, and uh, let's put to the teaching. Let's say nothing about the resurrection for the time being. Let's say nothing about that cross, because that's an offense uh, to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. Let's uh, turn the whole thing down so that people won't be annoyed by it and won't be irritated by it. Oh, I mustn't insult you by keeping you with these pints. But you remember that it was the exact opposite. You notice that they prayed, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. God's word, the message committed and delivered to them, the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. No, no. It's the exact opposite of uh, trimming and uh, compromising on the message. I haven't time this morning to work out all these points in detail. But I have no hesitation in asserting from this pulpit that the state of the Christian church today is mainly to be attributed to the fact that our grandfathers and fathers did the very thing that these people didn't do. Last century, you see, with the rise of the so-called scientific outlook, ah, they said we must be careful about miracles. These scientific gentlemen, they don't believe in miracles. Resurrection. Can't possibly. Virgin birth, no, no, they say it can't happen. And so on. So all these things were soft-pedaled. They were not mentioned. Or if they were, they were put in such a general philosophical form that they really had lost their meaning. The whole idea was, you see, to placate the public that was opposed to the gospel. But here are men who say, no, no, we want boldness to preach thy word as it is. They withdraw nothing. They don't compromise at all. They simply want greater power to go on speaking the very thing that they knew would be so offensive to the majority of the people. Neither do I find that they met together in a conference to plan how somehow or another to entice the world. I don't find anything here about a conference to say, well, now they evidently don't like that, but you know, they do like uh, this other type of thing. You're familiar with the argument, don't you? Young people don't like preaching, but they like being entertained. They like singing. Well, very well, let's give them that. That's the way to get hold of them. Let's just meet them on their own level, and then we'll gradually attract them and entice them to the church. You're familiar with all the argument, the organization, the money that's spent, and all the paraphernalia of it all. In this attempt, you see, to get round, to get at people, just as they are somehow. There's not a suspicion of it here. It's the exact opposite all along the line. They didn't do any one of those things. And the church has never touched anything of the kind in any period of revival and of reawakening. Now, that's a dogmatic statement, but it's an historical statement. 
And I just ask you to read the history, and you'll find that what I'm saying is nothing but the simple truth. That's never been the way in which the church has come to revival. Very well, then, what did they do? Well, let's look at it. The first thing we are told here is this, that when Peter and John had been let go, they went back to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Oh, I think this is a tremendous point. They went back to the church. They went back to their own people. You see, we're not told that Peter and John just called together their fellow apostles to have a conference of leaders. No, no. They went back to the whole company. To all who had become a Christian. To all those who were meeting together regularly for fellowship and for prayer and breaking of bread and so on, as we are told at the end of the second chapter. Now, the point of that, of course, is just this. That unless I'm very greatly mistaken, there seems to be a curious tendency today to leave the situation rarely to just a few people. And this notion has come in that uh, the vast bulk and majority of the people in the church are just to sit back and to watch somebody else doing it all. It's all going to be done by just one or two. And the church in its individual members doesn't seem to be engaged and doesn't seem to be involved. I think you'll agree that there is such an evident tendency at the present time. But you see, that isn't what happened here. They're all in it. The church is in it. You are in it, my friend. Every one of us is in it. You don't sit back and say, well, now then, let's hope that somebody's going to do something. The question is, what are you doing? They went back and reported it to their company. Every single member of the early church was involved in the situation. And then, you see, what happened at once was that all these people began to feel a concern. Because they're all in it. They're all related to Christ. They're all members of his church. They're members of his body. Nothing can happen to any part of the church but that they're all implicated. And they felt this great concern. You feel it in the very words. They went back and they reported these things to them. And when they, that's to say the church members, had heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. At once, they were overcome with this tremendous sense of concern and of responsibility. Oh, I'm simply making a number of points this morning, hurriedly as I pass along, in order that I may put certain questions to you. Are you really concerned about the state of the church and about the state of the world? I mean by that that when you read your newspapers and you see the terrible things and horrible things that are happening and hear about them on the wireless, are you just irritated and annoyed and upset? Or are you conscious of some great concern, a burden upon your souls? That was the term the fathers used, a burden for souls, feeling a pressure, feeling that this is your business and your problem and that it weighs upon you and presses upon your spirit. These people were concerned. You'll always find that before a great awakening or revival, there has always been a concern amongst a number of people. Very well, let's hurry on. What is the next thing we have to note? Well, the next thing is that the concern, of course, led immediately to prayer. Hearing the report, when they had heard it, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, 
This, of course, means this. That they realized at once that this was a situation with which they could not deal themselves. They realized their weakness. They realized their nothingness. They were men ignorant and unlearned. Not a, not a man of them was known to the public at all. Fishermen. Artisans. Not a great philosopher. Not a great political leader. Quite unknown. Non-entities. Nobodies. Who are they to impress the world? No, no, they didn't rely upon that. They realized that that was of no value. And they realized that in and of themselves, they really could do nothing. These men, you see, the leaders had been with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they remembered how he had said to them, Apart from me, ye can do nothing. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And the power is in the vine, not in the branches. Apart from me, without me, you can do nothing. And they realized that. So they went to him in prayer realizing their own utter inability, realizing that there was no point in calling a great conference to consider the situation and then try to draw plans along the lines that I've been suggesting, turn down the message, try and put on a more attractive program. No, nothing of that. They, of course, they knew at once all that is utterly useless. So at once, acknowledging their impotence and feeling it, they went to God and they prayed and they pleaded and they implored and they cast themselves upon him and the power of his might. Very well, let's go on and look at the prayer. This is so full of practical instruction. We mustn't stop at generalities. We must do exactly as they did. Now then, it's all very well to say we can do nothing. Let's pray about it. Yes, but you know, we must know how to pray. And look at the glorious example and illustration given here. The position was alarming. They've been threatened. They've been threatened with imprisonment. They've been threatened with death. They've been told categorically that they're never to preach this word again. That they're never to mention this Jesus in any shape or form. It's a complete ban. It seems to be the end of everything. But how did they pray? Well, you notice, don't you? No suspicion of excitement. Not a vestige or a suggestion of panic. They don't pray as men and women who are frantic and beside themselves and knew not what to do. No, no. These things, you see, are not incompatible. I've been stressing and emphasizing the fact that they realized how completely helpless they were and how they themselves could do nothing. But that didn't make them desperate. That didn't cause them to panic. That didn't get them into a state of feverish excitement and alarm. Not at all. They prayed a prayer of faith. They prayed as we should always pray. This is, you see, the miracle, the marvel, the paradox of being a Christian. That you can be confronted with the end and yet remain calm and cool. Why? Well, because... The Christian can pray in the way that these people prayed. Now then, how did they do it? Listen to them. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. You know, it's all there, really. But let me take out the principle and underline it. 
Oh, how we all must feel rebuked by this. I feel humbled and rebuked by it. I'm sure you all do. Did you notice how they prayed? When they heard this, they with one accord lifted up their voice and uh, to God and said, Lord, have mercy upon me and look upon me in my difficulties. Not a word. They don't mention themselves at all at first. Not a word about the problem at the beginning. This is true prayer, you see. True prayer never starts with man himself, nor with, his, with our little problems or our big problems. It doesn't matter what they are. True prayer always starts with worship. Lord! And you know, the moment you've uttered the word, you feel all right, don't you? There are the threatenings and the shoutings and the alarms and the enemy. And you go on your knees and you say, Lord! And then you go on and you say, Thou art God which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. You remember, don't you, that all that is nothing but a quotation from the second psalm. They don't finish the quotation, but you see they had it in their mind and they remembered that the psalm goes on to say this, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Oh, yes, they knew this psalm and they knew the truth that is declared in the psalm. They know that God is in heaven and that they are in earth. They knew a verse like this out of this second psalm. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. So they quoted that. And then you see they went on and they said, The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Then for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And having said all that, they say, And now, Lord, behold their threatening. Now then, this is prayer. You see, prayer starts with worship and adoration. Prayer doesn't start by looking at the problem. It starts by looking to God. And uh, it reminds itself of who God is, the Lord Jehovah. The God who created the whole universe out of nothing, the heavens and the earth and the sea, and everything that is in them, the Lord God Almighty. That's whom they're speaking to, not kings and princes and great earthly powers, doesn't matter who they are or what they are. God, who has made the heavens and the earth. Not only that, you see, they go on... To remind themselves and to remind God that everything is under his hand. Did you notice that extraordinary way of looking at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? They said uh, these people, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles, 
and the people of Israel were gathered together against thy holy child Jesus to do to him whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Peter had already told the Jews and all the authorities that in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says that Christ's death is to be, de to be explained like this, that he was delivered according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, you see, when they looked at the resurrection now, they didn't see the Jewish authorities, nor Pontius Pilate, nor anybody else. Oh, they said, this is God's way of saving men, and he's used these men, they're ignorant of it, but God has been using them, he's planned it, he's determined it. It's God's hand that has even been using them to bring his own great purposes to pass. In other words, they reminded themselves of this, that everything is under the hand of God. Kings and princes and authorities and powers, doesn't matter who they are or what they are. Everything is under God, and he's the Almighty. They start like that. And then, you see, they come to their problem, and they put it into that context and into that setting. But, of course, the moment you started like that, the problem is already rarely solved. You can't feel panic if you believe things like this. No, no. They now put their problem in the setting. And what is it? Well, what they seem to be saying is this. They said this immediate problem that confronts us is in reality not our personal problem at all. This is just a part of the great fight between God and the devil, heaven and hell, the forces of light and the forces of darkness. They said we are involved in it, of course, because we are his people. But the antagonism of these rulers is not against us, it's against the Lord and against his Christ, against his holy child Jesus, against the one whom he is anointed. No, no, they said this isn't our battle at all, we are just implicated in the great battle of God. Look at them, they said, therefore to God in their prayer. We see exactly what's happening. And you know, my friends, you and I must learn to do this. Oh, how the church wastes time. All this talk about modern learning and modern knowledge and reconciling science and religion and philosophy and how do you equate this and how do you explain that? Uh, I'm sorry, but I've only one thing to say about it all. It is completely irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the question at all. It's, n it's not a question of knowledge and of learning and of philosophy. You know, there's only one problem, and that is the problem of the devil who hates God and the natural man who hates God. It's this antagonism that's always the cause of the trouble, whether it takes the form of these rulers here or whether it takes the form of modern science and knowledge or whether it takes the form of communism or whatnot. It doesn't make any difference. The principle is the hatred and the antagonism of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and its attempt to drag down God and his kingdom to nothing. These people saw it. They saw their problem in its true setting. And it is only as you and I come to do this that we have any hope at all. All our books and apologetics, they might as well be burnt. They're of no value at all. They've never converted a soul. They never can. Reason and argument and demonstration are all right as supports. They've never brought anybody into life. This is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. And it's this power that we need. Oh, the time we waste through misunderstanding the real nature of the problem. The problem today is identical with the problem of the first century. It is this natural man under the dominion of Satan hating God. 
and trying to bring his kingdom to an end. Very well then, the next thing is their actual petition. Having put their problem into its context and its setting, they come to their petition. What is it? Do they ask God that he'd hold back the enemy and give them some ease and comfort, give them a respite? Not at all. Do they simply ask that they may have some thrilling experience while they're together in the room and while the authorities are not actually with them? Not a word. What is their request? They've only one request. They've but one petition. It's this. That his name may be glorified. That they may not fail nor falter. That they may ever be worthy of it. And that whatever the threatenings may be, that they may be filled with power and with boldness. That they may go on acting as witnesses. That's the only thing they pray for. Now, Lord, they said, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak the word. They didn't say, Lord, said somebody else, we've already suffered. Can't you raise up somebody else? Give us a moment, give us a bit of rest, have mercy upon us. Not a word, that with all boldness we may speak the word. Give it us by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. That's their petition. That's their only petition. Is it your petition and is it mine? Are these the things we are praying for? Come, let me take you to the next thing, which is the answer of God to the prayer. Here it is in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Now, that actually happened, you know. The place was shaken. The very building shook. Buildings can shake. Does anybody dispute that? I remember a Sunday morning in 1944 when this building literally shook. The walls shook. This rostrum shook beneath my feet. That was by a flying bomb. Well, if a flying bomb can shake a building, God can shake a building. And the place where they were assembled together was Shaken. Why do you think it was shaken? Oh, it was God giving reassurance to his dear servants and people. Just giving them a little specimen of his power. They've already acknowledged it. They've said, you are the creator of everything that is. And God replies saying, yes, you're quite right. Here's a touch of it. And the very building began to shake. The God who made everything out of nothing and who could end everything by a better word, by a stroke, by a flash. He just lets his people know that they're quite right, that he is the everlasting and eternal God. Yes, he shook the building. He gave them at that time power to speak in strange languages. He gave them power to work miracles. He does this at times. He doesn't always do it. He gives these things. He stops them. When he decides to give them, he gives them. He alone knows when they're needed, and when they're needed, he does give them. And you'll find he's gone on giving them throughout the centuries in different ways. You read the stories of the great revivals, and you'll find that there have been phenomena that people can't understand, and the world laughs and says, nonsense, fancy a building shaking. Yes, but the fact that they laugh doesn't interfere with the facts at all. God has done things that nobody can understand. He has repeated his miracles. He's given his signs. These people didn't ask for a sign, but God gave them a sign. And then something much more important. 
When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Oh, here's the thing. I don't ask this morning that this building be shaken, but I do ask that we all be filled with the Holy Ghost. What's it mean, says someone? How did they know they were filled with the Holy Ghost? What happens when you are filled with the Holy Ghost, I'll tell you. When we are filled with the Holy Ghost, God becomes a reality to us. We feel that he's near. We sense his glory. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ had said to some of these very people, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send him unto you. It's a good thing, he says, that I'm going. Do you know, said Christ, I'll be more real to you after I've gone than I am now. You think that I'm real now because you see me with eyes of flesh. Do you know when I've gone and I send the Spirit, he will make me more real to you than I am now. And when they were filled with the Spirit, oh, they realized his presence. They felt his glory. They experienced his love. And they sensed his power. That's what the filling with the Holy Ghost does. But Christ is not somewhat someone who is remote and whom we merely believe in with our intellects. No, no. He's made real. He's made nigh. We know he's there. And we thrill with the sense of his presence, his majesty, his love, and his glory. The filling with the Holy Ghost does another thing, and that is to give us an assurance and a certainty that we belong to him. You see, the Holy Spirit seals us. It gives us a guarantee. We've got God's stamp and seal upon us. The Holy Spirit is the seal. And that means that we know that we are his, whatever the world may be saying or doing about us. And it also gives us this guarantee and certainty that because he is who and what he is, that nothing and no one can ever separate us from his love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that? Do you know when you know him and feel his presence and his glory and sense his love and are taken up by it? When you feel that and know that and know that he'll never let you go, everything else becomes comparatively unimportant. It becomes trivial and almost irrelevant. Nothing matters except to know him and to abide in his love and in his presence. So, the filling with the Holy Spirit gives great joy and creates a great love in us to him and a desire to live to him and to his glory and to his praise. Yes, at all costs. Here are the people threatening. Here are the authorities threatening their prisons and threatening death. But knowing him, we say, what's it matter? They'll never separate us from you. And even if they kill us, they're just ushering us into thy presence. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be with Christ, which is far better. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. God again poured the Spirit upon them as he had done on the day of Pentecost. And filled with the Spirit, they knew him and the relationship. And they rejoiced and they were able to smile in the face of death or anything else. What's the result? Well, it's inevitable, isn't it? They spake the word of God with boldness. You can't help doing so if you really know him. 
You don't care what science says, what philosophy says, what the whole world may say. If you really know him, well, well, you'll go on telling people about him, whatever they may say, and with boldness. What are we to be afraid of in science and philosophy and all these things? What do they know about these matters? They know nothing at all. They're completely ignorant. They can't run the world. They can't run themselves. They can't manage their own lives. Who are they to talk about God and the soul and heaven and hell? Don't listen to them. Go on speaking the word of God and the word of Christ with boldness and with assurance and confidence. Oh, not only that. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Of course they were. Not as the result of an endless series of conferences that seem to do nothing but exaggerate the differences. There's only one way to get unity and that is all to be looking at him. And when you're looking at him and glorying in his presence, why you forget everything else. You're all one there. But it really means to know him, to be filled with the Spirit. It isn't something you put down on paper. It's to be filled with the Spirit and really to know him and to be in touch and communion with him. And that in turn leads to this, you see. Great power was given to the apostles in their witness to the resurrection. And then this last and most charming and beautiful word. Listen to verse 33. With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Of course there was. Beloved Christian people, are these things true of us? I ask again, are we concerned about the situation? Are we concerned about the glory of God and his holy name? Is that our central concern? It was the central concern of these people. They were not concerned about themselves, how to keep the church going, how to keep the doors open, how to attract the people and get a great congregation. Not a bit of it. The glory of God. They're threatening you, as they've always done. God, speak, act, show thyself, manifest thy glory, vindicate thy name. That was the only prayer. Is that our concern? Are we praying about it? Are we asking him to rise and scatter his enemies? Are we asking him that inhabiteth the heavens to laugh and to confound the world that is set against him? Are we praying that he should do that? And are we praying this in faith believing? Or are we taken up with a spirit of fear which leads to compromise and uncertainty and division? Do we know that he is still the Lord? The God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. The God under whose hand everything happens that happens. The God who planned the death of his own son that we might be delivered and used human instruments unconsciously. Is that the God you believe in? Are you afraid? Are you frightened? Let us humble ourselves before him. Let's go to him acknowledging our unbelief, our little faith, our lack of faith. Do you believe in the possibility of revival, my friend? Or are you afraid of revival? Do you long to see the manifestation of the power of God, not of necessity shaking buildings, but shaking men, shaking nations, shaking the world, converting people as they're walking to the service before they've even come to it? That's the sort of thing he does in revival. Do you believe in the possibility of revival in this great, sophisticated 20th century? Or have you begun to say, oh, well, it used to happen, but 
You can't have things like that now. Shame on us. God is still the same God. Therefore, let us believe in the possibility. Let us plead with him to rise and to do it. Let us look at these things and so meditate upon them that there shall be a great longing in our hearts that we shall feel the burden and our own impotence and cease from all our feverish, foolish activities. And as these people at the beginning, go to him with one voice and with one accord and pray to him to send the power and the authority, the vindicating might to show forth and to make bare the right hand of his own almighty power. And to that end, let us seek to be filled with the Spirit. If you desire to glorify Jesus Christ and to be a living witness to him, and if you realize your failure to do so and your inability to do so, well, go to God and say, there's nothing I so want us to know him and to be a witness to him, and I'll witness to him, come what may, whatever it may cost. Tell him that, and he'll fill you with his Spirit. For the Spirit is given to glorify Christ and not to call attention to himself. Therefore, I say, let this be our central purpose and objective, to know, to glorify, and to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to die for our sins, to rise again for our justification, and who shall come again into this world and judge it in righteousness and set up his everlasting kingdom. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.